Hello again, and welcome to Global Exchange, part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. I'm your host, Colin Robertson. On this episode, we talk about Canada's agri-food industry with Al Mussel, Ted Bilia, and Douglas Hadley. They recently published a report titled Agri-Food Productivity and Trade with the Canadian Agri-Food Policy Institute, or CAPI. We will link to the report in our program notes, and I encourage you all to look at it. Al Mussel is the research director at CAPI. Ted Bilia is a distinguished fellow of CAPI and a member of the Canadian Agricultural Hall of Fame. Doug Hadley had a long career as a senior executive in agriculture and agri-food Canada. Welcome back, gentlemen. Prepared prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there are often disturbing, but often, but always informative fact-based report sets out the rapidly changing context facing Canadian agri-food. A central theme is the need for a more nimble policy to recognize these shifts in a world, as they put it, living on the edge. They argue that Canada must rapidly prepare for a very different and largely unkind production, marketing, and trade environment. The Russian invasion only emphasizes, deepens, and places greater urgency on the concerns raised in the report. While they say an emphasis on sustainability and climate change is appropriate, it should not be to the exclusion or weakening of agricultural productivity and the role in food security that Canada can and does play. They also argue that the implicit assumption that markets will work and that export market access can be maintained needs re-examination. They conclude that going forward, Canada will need to work differently with its companies engaged in agri-food export trade. Just to remind listeners, Canada is the fifth largest global exporter of agricultural and agri-food products after the European Union, United States, Brazil, and China. In dollars, that's nearly $60 billion a year. Approximately half of everything we produce is exported in primary or processed form. We export half of our beef and cattle, 70% of our soybeans, 70% of our pork, 75% of our wheat, 90% of our canola, and 95% of our pulses. Over 90% of Canada's farmers are dependent on exports, as well as about 40% of our food processing sector. Exports account for one in two jobs in crop production and one in four jobs in food manufacturing. And again, just to remind listeners, 60% of what we generate as a country comes from trade. And of course, as I've outlined, agri-food plays a big piece in that. So let's begin. My first question is, do Canadians appreciate how important agri-food is to our trade and prosperity? And Doug, why don't you lead on this one? Uh, thanks very much, Colin. I think that the uh, simple answer to your question is, I don't think Canadians understand uh, how much things have changed in the last few years. So let me put it into a historical perspective. When, when we come out of the Second World War, uh, we and many other countries pumped a lot of uh, support into agriculture. Indeed, governments, in fact, were making markets because they didn't trust markets. As we come into the late 80s and early 90s, what we began to see is that governments wanted to get out of the markets. They wanted to regulate, yes, but uh, we wanted to get them out of 
actual making trades and uh, excess subsidies. We did that in the WTO. And the period following that, because there were, there were two or three things in the WTO that were really critical for Canada. Number one, it was a safe world to trade in. You had the support of the WTO uh, in the appellate body uh, so that small countries and large countries would have equal presence in the WTO. And the other is that it offered us guidelines on designing domestic programs. And once we got them in place, we just kept renewing them every five years. Well, starting a number of years ago, that benign world began to change. And people think about uh, the Ukraine today is setting off a, a uh, problem in food. It began before that. Um, our stocks to use ratios, for example, were starting to uh, get awfully thin, even five or six years ago. Then we had COVID, which disrupted all of our international trade. We lost the, the appellate body at the WTO. So Canada's in a very different position than it was even five or six years ago. Now, the paper that we gave went through a whole lot of issues that we now have to contend with that we didn't have six or eight years ago. Um, so let me stop there and see if others want to add to that. Sure, let me then invite uh, Al or Ted, if you'd like to come in on that. I think Douglas did a pretty good, uh, pretty good job of uh, covering the waterfront on that. I, I, I guess maybe you know to the uh, Douglas made reference to the stocks use ratio in major grains, and and you know I, I think people need to understand well before we got into the Ukraine crisis, you know we we found ourselves uh, in, in the UN uh, Food and Ag Organization. The data that they compiled for us, I think, demonstrates this pretty well. We started to find that despite the fact that we had impressive increases in production, let's say, of, of cereal crops, we still couldn't build any stocks. Um, and uh, the stocks that we did have, we found increasingly were located in importing countries, carrying the problem that they wouldn't be redeployed to deal with scarcity uh, if it came up in other, uh, other parts of the world. And, and of course, here we are today, uh, as that has, that has the, those problems have mounted, and, and of course, most recently, recently been exacerbated in a fairly explosive way back at, you know, on an inflation adjusted basis back in 1973 levels. Alan, do you want to, because one of the things that, that Doug, Douglas talked about, of course, was the, uh, the Russian invasion. I know the report was done before that, but I know you've also been looking at the effect of the disruption caused by the Russian invasion. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, you know, we, we go we go back. Um, no, no easy point in time to delineate it, but let's say you know over the last uh, ten years or so, um, you know, there's been. I think the early indications that uh, climate change is affecting our production systems. I mean, some of them have been uh, been egregious. You know, the the drought in Western Canada last year, the the flooding disasters in in both. Um, uh, British Columbia and also in, in Eastern Canada almost uh, almost simultaneously. And this has been experienced throughout the world. Um, agricultural systems uh, at a global level are pretty robust in terms of 
in any given year, you can have a bit of a, a problem and maybe even a disaster in one part of the world, but, but usually that's covered off with production elsewhere. We seem to be running into more frequent, uh, more problematic disasters that are less easily covered off in, uh, uh, in that manner. <clears throat> Agricultural productivity growth, in other words, uh, the productivity in agriculture um, increasing over time, that has uh, leveled off, uh, it's slowed down, particularly in the developing world where of course a lot of the demand pressure is coming from, from economic growth, from population growth and, and uh, the related, uh, related change in urbanization. Those, those are all driving those, um, those demand um, uh, pieces. You know, Douglas made reference to COVID-19 and some of the logistical uh, challenges. And boy, don't we wish we were out of the woods on that. Um, you know, as we speak, I, I think, um, unless I'm out of date, Shanghai or parts of Shanghai are being locked down. Yes. Uh, that by itself is probably, you worry about a recession stemming from that matter alone. But in terms of logistics, we're, we're, we're nowhere near um, uh, out of this. You know, other, other, other matters, uh, where I think we're you know, perhaps we're going to discuss further trade, trade policy. And trade policy is a big part of it, as Douglas made reference to with the, with the decline in the appellate body of the, uh, the WTO. Just, just simply shocks to the system. And, and um, you know, for your listeners, um, when African swine fever struck China in 2018, that, that sounds like a fairly arcane uh, animal disease problem. Well, well, it isn't. You know, when, when roughly 50% of the world's uh, pig population is in China and 50% are, um, are either killed by the disease or need to be culled as part of the treatment for the disease, well, then you could do the arithmetic. You've just lost 25% of your pork supply, roughly speaking. Um, the world pork supply. <laughs> yes, the, the global pork supply, exactly. Um, and, and, you know, this isn't, this isn't uh, you know, sort of a gradual change. It, it comes on fairly suddenly. And, and of course, you know, nobody has the, the uh, extra inventories that they can suddenly offer up to try and cover off a magnitude, uh, a disaster of that magnitude. So... Um, you know, in, 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 in response to this, there's, there's been, um, well, first of all, hoarding, uh, sometimes in the form of public stockholding. So uh, some Middle Eastern countries, um, and, and again, this is before we got into the, the crisis in Ukraine, uh, Jordan, uh, uh, Egypt uh, come to mind immediately. There's quite a number of others. Uh, others that have gotten into export embargoes, exporting countries. Um, uh, Argentina comes immediately to mind. And then, of course, more recently, both Russia and Ukraine have invoked um, em embargoes. And, and I read um, last week that, uh, that I think this was uh, former President Medvedev had, had said, you know, more or less as a threat that, you know, we're, we're only prepared to export wheat to our friends or something to that effect, almost threatening access to, uh, to food as a, as a weapon. Um, as this has gone on, the volatility that it puts into markets is, is tremendous. Um, you know, probably many people have read about the, the, the crazy situation with the nickel futures market, but in food, uh, we went through not quite as extreme, but a very similar reverberation into the wheat market. And then that will go through just about all of your major cereals because they tend to move together. And what it does is it's, it's companies um, wanting to hold more inventory out of fear that they will run out. 
on the trading side, it consumes more financial capital to stay in the market. In some cases, just unfathomable amounts to stay in the market. And, uh, and it just creates a completely different vol uh, um, situation with regard to volatility, access and financing than what we had previously. Now, Alvin, you say the companies, you know, need obviously a fair bit of capital for this volatility. What does this actually mean for the farmers themselves? Well, what, what, what it means is, um, you know, I guess the best way to say it is you're going to have to have more cash to play. Hmm. Um, you know, the, the trading in, uh, on the risk management side, uh, the, the trading in futures markets is done on margin. And, uh, you know, in order to hold a, a position, which may, may be very prudent, it's not speculation or anything like that, maybe prudent matter, but the amount of cash required to back some of those positions has just increased dramatically. And it's, it's interesting. I, I've been, I've been uh, talking to farmers recently, and, and the way they have had to adjust working capital requirements and their credit lines to be able to cope with this, you know, you think these are family businesses, and they now have to have, you know, over the course of the week, one, one person I spoke to, they had to adjust their credit line $5 million for one week, and then they went back the next week and had to get another $5 million. Uh, this is this is hard to fathom for uh, for a lot of folks, I'm afraid. And and how are hey, clearly, I suppose then you you use this collateral, your farm and future production. But are there government support programs? Are they do they have the capacity to meet these new demands? And I guess they're both provincially and federally administered. Well, I, I think I'm going to defer to Douglas uh, on that in a moment, but but I. I think the short answer is, uh, you know, look, we, we've got uh, uh, farm income stabilization programs that, uh, you know, that have been refined uh, over time uh, very prudently based on history. But the problem we have now is uh, when you're when you're dealing with an out of sample situation, uh, they're going to come under they're going to come under strain. Now, D Douglas, would you want to say more about that? You know, the, the, the programs were set up to deal not only with revenue, but also um, margins after expenses. Um, and the difficulty is that whereas your, your stereo and, and oil seed prices are up, so are the costs of producing those crops, particularly through your chemicals, fertilizer and, and uh, pesticides. So it's unclear to me that we can rely exclusively on the existing programs. We may very well need uh, some further assistance, uh, but leave the, leave the ones that we have in place. Uh, they will take care of some of it. But as Al says, that, that change in capital and the inability at the present time to hedge um, at the farm level against costs and future revenues this fall, that, that is really causing the upset in the market. Douglas, who leads on devising the programs? I mean, you were in government. Is it the, the federal government? Is it the provincial government? Is it the associations that sort of come out? How do we get this right? Because this is now pressing and urgent. We've got to feed people. We've got to feed our nation. We want to export. Who, who uh, takes the lead in designing the programs that can quickly meet the need so we can do continue to, to farm and, and uh, do food production? Colin, my favorite topic. <laughs> um, what we showed starting in the, year, uh, in the late 1990s is that if you're going to have 
a fair and equitable uh, policy um, in assistance to agriculture, then it's going to have to be a joint effort between the federal and provincial governments. That is probably one of the most uh, critical pieces of uh, infrastructure in designing policy. Now, my concern is that it's based on a long-term um, building of trust. I know how hard that is. I did 10 years of my career on that. Uh, building that, that trust and the ability to have the conversations necessary to get common programming across Canada. Because of the, the situation today, COVID prevented a lot of um, federal provincial ministers meetings. They took place, but it was virtual. And what they lost was the companionship, the trust of having a coffee, having a dinner together. Um, so there has to be a rebuilding here of that trust. It's not just the federal government saying to the provinces, you got to fund this. You have to build a level of trust in that. I mean, it, it's showing up uh, in areas far beyond agriculture, in the east-west divide on a number of issues. That makes building trust in the ag sector much more difficult. So we have to come back to that issue to build it, to get a common purpose across all of the provinces and territories with the federal government if we're going to move on programs. And, and when you do get that, are we talking about regulation or legislation or uh, executive edict? How does it, how do you get it so that it, it, it gets implemented quickly and you get bluntly funding out to those who need it? Colin, the, the uh, legal structure that we have in Canada is that most of our laws are enabling. They are not like the US Farm Bill where they specify down to the last uh, detail and period. Um, and as a result, uh, for example, the Farm Income Protection Act has, all you have to do is go to cabinet, get approval for your program, and you have the legal authorization for it through that uh, law. And the provinces are designed the same way okay. with the flexibility to react fairly quickly once you get the agreement uh, from your uh, uh, various ministers. Okay, so I mean, that's comforting, at least, to know that, that, that that's, and again, based on experience, but as you point out, it's the human interaction, which comes from the personal contact that we've missed over the last couple of years. And of course, changes in, in the players makes that vital uh, commodity, which is trust, uh, something that they have to work at and build over time. Let, yeah. me shift, let me shift for a second, go back to the Ukraine, because I want to bring Ted in on this, because I know he's looked at this about the effect of the blockade that the Russians have on what, if we're the bread basket, or at least we're the bread basket in, in North America, Ukraine's been referred to as the bread basket for Europe, but servicing much of the, uh, the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, do you wanna, can you give our listeners a sense of what it means when, when you've basically probably prevented uh, planting, harvesting and blockading of the Ukraine. 
I don't think we've ever really gone through anything like this uh, since the Second World War. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the closest we probably came to it and, and avoided uh, the, the massive problems we're going to have here was probably back in 1973 when uh, we had the great grain robbery. Yeah. You, I think you know, some of your listeners that uh, have been around a while will probably remember it, but- um, Why don't you just tell listeners what that was? Because it's, it's got me interested as well, the great grain robbery of 1973. <laughs> so, so this, this was interesting. This is before we had satellites and we, were, and we didn't realize that the Soviet Union had two bad crops in a row in, uh, in, uh, back, back in uh, 71 and 72. And we, we just didn't know that. And the, uh, it seems shocking today. So they arrived um, in, uh, in 73, they arrived for grain negotiations and teams were set up uh, by the Russians to go and negotiate separately with the major grain companies. And there was about seven of them. And they held those meetings at the same time in the same day. And they bought all the grain that essentially they could buy. And the US woke up, they didn't realize the next day that they'd all sold grain. But they, over a, over a period of time, it became clear that the US had no grain and it was all sold. And that's when uh, Nixon had to put the embargo on the export of grain from the United States, grain and oil seeds. And, the, and Canada had to follow suit very quickly after that in 73. So, you know, painting the picture of how bad, bad can get, we, can, we, we have gone down that road and it, it caused enormous um, disruption in the industry. I was a young grain trader at the time in Canada Packers and you know, trading meat and grain. And um, so um, I learned the hard way really quick that, you know, I was trying to launch the first two container loads of soybeans to, to Japan at that time. They were the first two to ever go. I had to go to Ottawa to get a permit. And it was like getting a permit for nuclear waste um, to, to get them out of the country. So it, 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 things can get pretty bad pretty quick and um the and, and I, I don't i don't foresee us going into that scenario but i but many countries as al have said have already gone that way you know they they put on the the, the controls the other the other thing just to, to back up slightly just to put i find that the the thing that's the hardest for canadians that are not even canadians i'll say this even canadians in the business to get their heads wrapped around is the scale of what's produced, where it's produced. And, the, and, and for example, the, the one I like to use is that China plus India, they produce about 225 million tons of wheat, those two. So they're by far the biggest producers. In fact, if you line up the next four countries in a row, Russia, um, US, Canada, France, and Ukraine, they don't produce. 200, they don't produce 225 million tons themselves. They come in a little bit around the 220. Um, so it, 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 there, there's this feeling that we're this powerful producers you know, of, of, of grain, but actually the real problem is, as Al said with, or Doug said with pork was when you had a pork problem in China, the rest of the world couldn't help them. There's not a chance and it, it, it's that big. Well, in wheat, is this, if either China or India has a problem with wheat, you have the same problem. There's no way you can bail them out. But having said that, <laughs> that's, 
that that's kind of I think important maybe you'll understand what the scale looks like really um, because Asia is the, the 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 world growth in consumption has come dramatically out of Asia but people forget the world's production in in the world has come dramatically out of Asia too it's not that the not that the Americas have a big spike in production to feed all this their production has been going up but very slowly and as uh, as as was said um, actually in increasing, but the productivity rate not increasing very much. And uh, so if you, if you look at where we are today, when you take Ukraine out of the, I'll just run through a couple of numbers with you, but you know, you, Ukraine itself accounts for about um, 12 or 13% of all the barley, uh, about 15% uh, of all the corn, uh, for, um, 49% um, almost 50% of the sunflower oil and um, about 10% uh, of the wheat in the world. Well, those are big numbers, but if you add the Russian portion to that, you get very substantial amounts of the, of the free floating stuff that's left. So it's, it's, a, it's a major issue that, uh, that we're, we're gonna be dealing with for a while. This is not a one, this is not a one year issue by any means. We're, we probably will get through this year as we, we're, we're right now, if you went across the country, people are sweeping the bottoms of grain bins because there's nothing left, a lousy crop and, and it's all gone that, you know, from now till the end of the season, there won't be much exported. Um, so, and, and the, the, uh, the US has, has some, but it's not in a healthy position either. So, but the real issue I, I, I want people to, to think about is that we're betting on a good crop globally next year. Because we're starting from a really poor position with our stocks, as Doug, Doug said very well, our stock use ratios are at very low levels. I mean, they, they, they're stunningly low. And the, um, and, and, at the and, and majority of the stock that is there is held in China by the country mile. Very, very little stock held about 55 million tons in the world held by uh, essentially exporters. And that's a, that's a drop in the bucket, you know, com compared to what um, China is holding today. So it's, you know, China has about 131 million tons of, of wheat and they're gonna need it all because they have a bad wheat crop coming. This, they, you remember the rains, so I think it was, Al, I think you mentioned the rains and the, uh, the, the, in Canada, well, they had, massive rains in central China and uh, in flooding cities, you know, and the, uh, and they were very late planting and that late planting could cost them about a third of their wheat production. So it's, 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 it's a pretty serious problem. And um, one that um, I, we're not going to see um, just, it's not a one year phenomenon. Now you make a point that you know, we, we did 1973, we, we didn't know that Russian crops were bad. We didn't have the technology we have today. We now have the technology. So my, my guess is, but I would put this question to you, we can actually predict with reasonable reliability as to what's gonna happen. You can't predict the weather, but you can sort of get a sense of what's going on because of climate and because of technology and satellites and stuff as to what's going on around the world. Is that correct? Uh yeah, yeah, to, uh, to, to, in some cases, a fairly accurate degree. But I mean, the, the problem we have in Ukraine is, you know, you, you've got an active conflict situation. So, uh, you know, the, the vast majority of the wheat 
in Ukraine is uh, winter wheat. So it was sowed last fall, essentially. So it's already been sowed. Um, so that acreage is fixed. Now it, uh, it still needs to be tended to with uh, crop protection and, and fertilizer. And then of course it still needs to be harvested. How much will actually get harvested is, is anyone's guess. I, I, I saw an interview um, somewhere last week with somebody who actually she she was she was um, she was a refugee and, and moving into Poland and she was actually a grain market analyst and I think she said something like half the wheat will be harvested and thirty percent of the corn and spring crops will be sown. Well, that's probably as good a guess as anybody, but but of course this is still a guess. Uh, we we really have no we really have no idea. Um, Can I add one thing to what Al's saying? Um, Ukraine's going to need this product for themselves. They, yeah. they, the, that, that they aren't going to be able to uh, afford to export much of it. So much stuff has been damaged, um, and and they're they're good, certainly on the edible crops, the grain, the, the grain um, crops. They're they're going to need this you know, to, so they don't starve in in Ukraine. I'm I'm very worried about their food yeah. supply this year. Well, and 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 then you know just just to, just to build on that to try and connect some some dots. So there's. The, the 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 production side and and you know we, we have good satellite technology but but really regardless of that it's anyone's guess at, at, at this point um, the the grain that is in store largely corn and wheat we understand um, probably a lot of it pre-sold to the to uh, to China that that will be needed for consumption in Ukraine almost for sure so that's not going anywhere then you have to remember that we have if I understand correctly better than three million people displaced as as refugees mostly still in eastern europe they're, they're going to need to be fed somehow or other so this is another big humanitarian problem and and then and then finally um you've got the countries that historically have been dependent upon um product that they import that are of black sea origin ukrainian or russian they are they are very focused in uh north african countries and throughout the Middle East. Um, if, if you go and look at estimates of, um, of proportions of the diet that come from wheat flour, it's, it's, it's among the highest in the world. So in other words, a lot of their diets are, they eat a lot of bread. Um, and then just, so that, that's not good. Then, then sort of to top it off, um, you know, they could easily be spending more than 40% of their income, household income on food. So, you know, even, even if it was just a matter that the price was skyrocketing, which it is, that would be a very big problem. But it's, it's unclear that this product is going to be unavailable. And, you know, you look at a country like Algeria, and I don't pretend to be a scholar of Algeria, but we understand that they're in the midst of a constitutional crisis, might even be a coup, I don't, I don't know. But, uh, you know, the report last week released by the USDA on Algeria, they said firmly that the belief is that people do not plan to cut back on their consumption of wheat-based product in Algeria. This is a cultural thing, I guess. I don't know how that's going to work. I guess rich people will eat and poor people won't. And and what a what a horrible situation that is. But but you know we we already I think we've already had some bread riots. Well, I expect a lot more of that. And and we we hope that this doesn't become destabling to the point that we end up having secondary conflicts in that part of the world. Um, 
um, you know, essentially caused by this disruption in the Black Sea, but that we can't rule that out. No, uh, in fact, Colin, if I could just add one thing to what Al said, the the um, World Food Program has just come out. You've probably seen this and said, you know, before the invasion, essentially there was 283 million people who faced hunger, and there was 45 million that were on the edge of starvation, as we said. And their their prediction is both numbers are going to double, you know, largely due to the fact that, as Al said that both the uh, wheat from Ukraine and wheat from Russia fundamentally feeds those people. And Ukraine was the biggest contributor from a wheat point for wheat to the World Food Program. So this, this is, this is going to be a monumental um, human disaster. Yeah, and, and I wouldn't want to minimize it. Uh, I've also been reading a little bit, I think, more Russian source product into the Horn of Africa and East Africa. But it's going to it's going to have effects in there too, and 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 certainly there are going to be people starve. It's it's terrible. Colin, to build on that, we have to understand that markets are not going to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. They they cannot do the allocations that are going to be required if we're going to keep people alive. So Doug, what do we turn to the WTO? But it seems, as you said, the rules based system seems to be breaking down. Is, well, where, where do it, we? What's what's the international? response because this well, is a global problem uh certainly the the world food program is has got to be part of it okay but a number of countries that have supplies of uh product are going to have to learn how to share that other than through a market because the market's not going to do it for us i mean ted was very clear about that yes it may add to that though that we 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 don't have a system set up anywhere globally uh, that uh, that really allows for that in the sense that you, you would you have to be pulling stuff from a stock so if we're talking this year canada can do zero there's yes. nothing left in the cupboard and and the uh, and when we start the new year you would have to start off by saying well people are going to have to reserve a certain amount of this set it aside so that it can't be if it, it, it becomes government stock but the only country in the world with a significant stock is China, you know, they, and they're not going to share this. They're not going to share this stuff. So this is this is a pretty fundamental problem. It's even if we want to do this, we'd have to figure out how could you do it, you know, it, because it would be it would take some form of rationing in order to do it within the countries that have the grain, and and that that's going to be a big change. Ted, it's hard to be encouraged because we've seen with with the pandemic. There wasn't exactly a lot of no. multilateral cooperation. The Secretary General of the UN, you know, was really lamented this on climate. Yeah. We've made some progress, but now it's coming to the enforcement side and the commitment side, and that's not going so well. So what you're saying in terms of food, we're in a similar situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. The, the only country that's made it very clear that, uh, that, that as, as Xi Jinping said recently, that he wants to hold the rice bowl in, the Chinese, in Chinese hands. Yes. He's very, very clear on what he's thinking and doing. Whether it'll all work is entirely a different matter. Um, and I'll get my doubts, but the, um, but, but that, that's, we all, we've never thought about because we've come from the, we're all children of the world of abundance. And we're moving into a different world here. And so we, we, it's going to take, whatever we do, we won't be able to do it overnight. It's going to take a, a systematic change.
Any lessons from 73? Because clearly the Russians needed to be fed after they'd had those two crops. Yes, we'd put basically uh, export controls on, but did we get through it? I mean, we must have got through it. Did the Russians get fed? And how did that happen? Um, they got some of the grain. They got some. And uh, they, they you know, the Russians, a lot of people died in, in you know, in the old Soviet Union times. And uh, it, it, as you know, um, but, the, but one, of the, one of the biggest lessons that it, it long-term was very uh, hurt, hurt American grain and hurt the world long-term. Because what it did is all my customers in Japan, on the next day that this happened, I couldn't find any of them. I said, where are you? They're all on their way to Brazil. Huh. They discovered Brazil. And you know, we, oh my God, here's a place we can grow grain. Um, and, uh, and from that day onward, the, you know, the, the forests have been cut down and that became a, a, a sustainability issue um, of, of huge magnitude. So it started with essentially lowering the boom. When, when people get desperate, they go find things. In this case, basically they discovered a new world of agriculture. Colin, if I can add to that. Um, but first of all, recall that we had a glut of wheat on the world markets at that point. The US was subsidizing the export of some 80% of the uh, wheat moving in the world. Because of those low prices, Canada had uh, the program to cut back on wheat acreage. In fact, we limited it to 12 million acres, 12 million tons. Uh, that was down from over 22 million tons. So the moment that uh, market shifted, because um, the Russians bought it almost surreptitiously through the markets in, in Switzerland, and it, and it broke on the world market, it meant that uh, we had acreage to put in the next year, mm -hmm. as well as having a buildup of stocks throughout the late 60s and early 70s. So it was easier to overcome than what it is today because now with our uh, stocks to use ratio, we don't have a lot of spare land. We don't have a lot of stocks laying around and we've just lost a huge chunk in uh, the Black Sea. Hey, can, I, can I add one thing so people will understand this growth in the stock use thing? Basically what's happened, if you, if you go back and look at the last decade or so, Basically, your demand side, your utilization, it's growing a little over 1.8% um, a year. It's about close to 1.9. And but the but what you get from year to year because of Mother Nature, largely, and and other things, is a, a little bit of an erratic line that goes up and down as it goes up. And it's growing on average just a little less than the than the increase in the demand, around maybe 1.7. And in the last five years, that uh, uh, demand has continued, but the vagarities of the market have meant that we've dropped about 0.1%. That is, that is causing this enormous difficulty. And, the, and the, historically, we had all the good things going. You know, we, we had fertilizer, we had new seeds, you know, and uh, um, we, we drilled holes all over the world. So we had millions of, of wells, you know, for irrigation, all that is beginning to wane a little bit. And then mother nature comes along and, and, and makes the hill higher, harder to climb. Right. So the, so, so this, this is, a, this is a problem that's not going to get easier. 
it's going to kind of get worse. And the big issue behind all this was we made up for that uh, in the last many years by simply bringing more land into production. And we brought it into production in areas of the world where it probably should never have been brought into production. And, the, and, and that just makes our, prob, our hill higher in the long run. So, so that we're, we're, we're up against between a rock and a hard place here in, in the, unless we have, can find ways of adding productivity to seed development that we haven't thought of or, or significant breakthroughs, let's put it that way. And, and, and just if I could uh, add to that, Colin, um, you know, just, just to build on what uh, Ted just said, you know, in, in, in 1973, we weren't particularly concerned about um, agriculture as a potential soy, a source of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, but countries, including Canada, have committed, and agriculture is part of that, to limiting um, uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So we've, we've, we've put a constraint on ourselves. Now, now you know, the, these things are related, okay? So, you, you know, <laughs> If, if, if we don't do that, if we, if we just ignore uh, our climate change problems and continue to contribute to them, then this will just make the problem of food production even more difficult over time, as per the, you know, the comment on, on uh, destruction of forests in Brazil and, and, and elsewhere. But we, you, you begin to see the difficulty we face today. We need to produce more food but we have to do it without causing some of the environmental damage that unintentionally has occurred previously through greenhouse gas emissions. So it's tougher today. No, and, and your report does look at, as you say, the energy and agriculture link. Um, I'll come back to you, Ted. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Because that's a, a piece in the report that you say we've got to somehow come, come to grips with. Yeah, um, I think... I, I think people understand um, that, uh, you know, part of the problem here has been the, um, the fact that, that, that fertilizer costs have risen so rapidly. And, the, and it, 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 it tends to change what you're going to plant. We're, we're seeing that play out in front of our eyes in the last couple of days in the U.S. when everybody was betting corn was going to be planted, you know, heavily, and it turned out no. <laughs> soybeans going to be planted heavily and corn less so because you don't need as much fertilizer. And, the, and, the, and when we look at the Canadian situation, we asked ourselves, so why is it that Canada, Eastern Canada, is so dependent on Russian, you know, um, nitrogen for nitrogenous fertilizers of all kinds? It's, it's hugely dependent on it and uh, rather than the West. And Colin, the simple answer is because we have not really thought properly through our energy policies. So the fact that, you know, it's, you know it, it's expensive to move the finished product from Western Canada to Eastern Canada, but you could make the product in Eastern Canada if you had a, you know, more gas in Eastern Canada, which we don't, we don't have enough gas pipeline into Eastern Canada, or better, if you pumped ammonia into Eastern Canada, then you can make it very, very um, competitively. And, um, and, but, you know, we, we don't have a, we, we've looked at this thing very differently. We've looked at this, um, we seem to be allergic to the idea. We, we don't want to talk about, let's put that way. We don't want to talk about the idea that if you had a transition program for energy, it would include a lot of natural gas. And so you can, you can plan out how you're going to get from where we are today to where we need to be in the future. 
And in fact, I know this is not going to sound good, but the you know the the best thing Canada could do for the world, in terms of way beyond what we can do with our agriculture, but the would be simply to be at least for the next twenty years to be able to export natural gas to Asia to get them off coal. The the savings from the for the planet would be far greater, and the so but in the in the in the in the meantime we've got the nitrogenous problem where we're going to have to now, you know, backfill. Um, and this is very late in the season to be trying to do that when we, when there are ships literally turned around and going back the other way that we're coming into Quebec. Um, the, so that's one issue. This, the second issue is, is um, also around that it takes, it, it takes a lot of energy to produce other types of fertilizer. And um, so what we, what we, uh, our leverage for the world was really our potash, the, the potassium fertilizers, um, you know, and uh, that that's that's fantastic. We 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 need to think through how we can use that because we're the largest um, su supplier in the world. Russia, plus Belarus is bigger when you add them together, um, you know, and, and 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 they supply most of the of Africa and. Uh, and, and, and a fair bit of, of um, South America where you really can't grow stuff in these tropical countries without that. Um, and, and so that, there's leverage. And, but the one, the one I would, I think that it, where there's real savings and where Canada is exposed is on, on the phosphate side. And that, that's, you know, we, we're beginning to learn if you want to help with climate change and agriculture, you better pay attention to the roots of the plant. That's all phosphate issues. And we we have we have one mine coming on stream in Quebec, but other than that, we don't have any. We're, we're dependent on offshore, and the and yet the, the one thing we could do is we could we could realize that if you wanted to have lots of phosphate, mine your cities, because <laughs> urine is the it, you know produces struvite, which is essentially phosphate added with nitrogen and and, and you know and potassium. So you almost have perfect fertilizer if you can capture that. And Canada could spend a little more time doing that. You save a lot of energy and we'd have a better agricultural system because you just recycle everything. Um, and you still import, but not, not the anywhere the quantities we have today. So agriculture and energy are connected right at the, you know, at the hip. If, if energy price, prices go up, commodity prices are gonna go up in agriculture. Um, <laughs> Colin, Colin, there's another aspect to this, and um, I want to take us back to, uh, it would be 2018, uh, in the thick of the trade wars um, under the U.S. Trump administration, principally directed at China. Um, it, one of the points of retaliation that China took back against the United States was on soybeans. Um, that, in turn, led the, the United States to... Um, come up with what in effect is a, a managed trade arrangement with Japan, uh, the US-Japan agreement in, in large part, not, not, not only soybeans, but in large part to try and recover a market for soybeans that was effectively denied to them by the, uh, by the Chinese retaliatory action. But it also spurred greater interest in renewable fuels or something else could be done to use up the US soybean supply. Uh, that in combination with a very progressive um, uh, climate change agenda from the state of California led to this, this uh, 
development of renewable diesel. So a renewable diesel is a product that can be made from 100% waste to you know waste grease from restaurants or or fats from uh, meat processing or soybean oil or canola oil. Well, if when we look forward and and you know Ted can correct me if I'm wrong here, but the uh, I, I think we go from something like capacity to make this product in the U.S. of somewhere in the order of 600 million gallons as of 2020, if I recall up to like, I, I think what's expected is by 2025, they could have 5 billion gallons yep. of capacity. Well, the appetite for these plants, if they're going to be principally um, fed by, by uh, oilseed crops, more so than animal byproducts, which is the expectation, the, the demand for soybeans to produce the soybean oil to produce the renewable diesel. And of course, it, we can do the same thing with canola as a feedstock in Canada, and Canada has some of these plants as well, is they have a voracious appetite. So you, you get yourself in this odd situation where, you know, e even, even before the, the, um, the explosive developments having, you know, affecting food security from the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we were already pretty tight on our grain supply, and we had some real worries about that. We, we got off on this and, and now we're setting up, uh, you know, it's, it's probably not as simple as simply a, a, a food versus fuel um, allocation choice that we have to make of crops, but that's going to be heavily involved. Yeah. And, yes. and I wouldn't want to understate the magnitude of, of the choice and difficulties we're going to get ourselves into. And, and, and Al, that opens up my last question to you. And I, because of our more limited time, I, I want to ask you, what would, as your report says, a new agri-food strategy look like? And you know, you say that it's got to have three dimensions, social, economic, environmental, and we've covered a lot of those, but I wouldn't mind a couple of words from, and why don't you start off on this one, um, <coughs> Ted, and then Doug, and then Al, about what a new policy could and should look like. So please, Ted. Um. Well, you know, I, I think it, I, that's, that's the $64,000 question really, but the, there, there's many aspects to it. Um, I think first and foremost in, in Canada, we have to make sure that we are, are covered, you know, when it, when it really comes to um, the uh, food security ourselves, because we've got the three A's to deal with, you know, um, availability, accessibility, and affordability, and the and the, the second of those two A's is, is maybe becoming a bit of a problem, I think. So, so I like to start a column by thinking that the, the, first off, when we initiate policies, the first thing should be the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm, harm. And, and, uh, and then start from there. And the, and the second one I've alluded to already is I think we need to have a really um, a, a strategic interest in, in essentially things that are sustainable, sustainability. And I put phosphate very much in that uh, pot because the world is going to run low on phosphate that we, and, and we can't grow plants without it. Um, and so we need to be very creative about how we do it. You, if somebody says to you, well, there's lots of it in North Africa, go get it in Morocco. Uh, be cautious of that one because that, there's a lot of cadmium comes with that. And I don't think most farmers want to be spreading cadmium on their, on their, on their fields. Um, I think I think another one I would throw in the window is we need some kind of a red line, uh, just as you know, as China has formed. Xi Jinping has 
One of his policies is thou shalt not convert any more land in China from agriculture to anything else. Right. We don't have that in Canada. And, uh, and yet, so we need to be very cautious that, you know, good agricultural land should not be used for housing developments or, or anything else. Um, and, and I think we should get on with that. And the, um, the other one that I think is, is, is a little bit far-fetched perhaps, but, but very important is that at some point in time, if we're serious about uh, climate change, we're gonna have to look at carbon border adjustments. And glo globally, if we can do that together with other countries globally, um, the part of the money raised on that should be used to, be, to preserve tropical forests and, and grasslands of the world. Uh, if we don't do that, um, if, you know, rather than turning them into temporary, you know, food, which is not going to last long, and as soon as the fertilizer runs out, so will the food. Um, th those are some of the things that I would start in in off with. That, uh, and and maybe I'll leave it, and then I'll let Al and Doug step in. But one that I'm a little more nervous about, but I because we need to think through it. But I would also I begin to look at um, what I would call a new definition of. We, we have the definition of most favored nations, but I, I would just have a, a thing called favored nations. And those are, those are people that we can enter into a coalition of the willing to uh, essentially as a group um, agree on issues and agree on following the same rules, for example. And those that don't follow the rules, well, we won't, we won't cut them off, but we'll make, you know, they may not get the same treatment uh, as others. And, in certain cases with nations that are highly dependent on, on Canada and where we have very good relationships, this is more in your background, Colin, we might consider the possibility of national treatment um, with, with those people because the day is coming when that would be a big deal. So I'm gonna stop there and- no, I think that makes sense. Douglas, do you want to add a, a comment on this and then I'll let Al in sort of briefly because then, I'll, then I'm gonna ask you all what you're reading. So Douglas. Uh, yes, come back to the point. Um, they, they effectively linked energy and, and agriculture very closely. What that means is, uh, because of the way the Constitution is set up, not only do you have to have your federal provincial ministers of agriculture working together, you have to have them in energy as well. Yeah. Now, we also know how politically laden that is. So it's going to be a tough haul to get to the, some of the things that Ted has talked about. But as you uh, say, we, we, we know what needs to be done. Al, let me give you the last word on this one. Yeah, we're, we're, we're in an environment today in, in which we now have to worry about um, countries um, acting in, in more of a colonial or, or mercantilist manner around food. And, and we've been poorly... <laughs> Well, I should be careful how we say this. Uh, I, our, 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 um, our status as, as an open economy and mostly a, a free trader has served us exceptionally well. And, and I think we have to acknowledge that. The worry is that now the situation has changed and that could come from being asset to a, to a liability. You know, so we have to worry about what would happen you know, with, if, uh, if uh, a foreign uh, entity that, that did let's say, was not aligned with Canada's ag and food policies or, or a lot of our values were to acquire one of our major food companies. That, that could pose a very immediate and real problem for us. 
Similarly, we have to worry about the use of predatory or, or uh, intentional technical barriers to trade that, that uh, purposely target some of those firms because we need them. They are part of our system. And in an, in an open market economy, you, you, don't, you don't worry about it. Now we, now we need to. Yeah. All right. Well, look, in addition to your splendid report, Agri-Food Productivity and Trade, which uh, we're going to link to in the program notes, what are you reading these days? And I'll let you start, Al. Well, I've been, I've been I'm just finishing up uh, Donald Savoie's um, latest book. And I'm, it's something, that, the title is something to do with the decline of our institutions. I would, I would highly recommend it. Okay, good. Douglas, what are you reading or streaming these days? <laughs> uh, I'm not reading books at the moment. I'm still trying to catch up and, and stay up to date on what's happening in our ag and uh, energy industries. Um, with one exception to that, and that is that I'm a birder. <laughs> uh, I just got two new birds in California where my daughter lives and we visit each year and I'm now at my son's place in Arizona. So I am looking for birds when I have time. Oh, great. Well, that's an excellent hobby and a great diversion. All right, Ted, you get, uh, what about you reading or streaming these days? I, I'm learning about energy for the first time in a serious way. And I and I was given uh, Triple Crown, which is the late Jim Prentice right. book. And uh, his his uh, uh, EA for many, many years, John Sebastian Ryu, right. uh, wrote it after, finished it after t uh, that uh, Jim died. Um, but it's a, it's a wonderful primer on all energy in Canada, you know, um, both, both the fossil fuel and, and uh, water power and nuclear and all that it's it goes into it in great depth and it's it's helped me a great deal to connect the the issues around the energy industry and the ag industry but it's a, it's a, it's a highly recommendable no i i certainly agree with that because it also brings in the whole indigenous issue as well as yes. excuse me climate and energy no a first class book i recommended yeah. to my uh, students at the canadian foreign service institute well look thank you gentlemen and thanks for listening to this episode of the global exchange we were joined today by Al Mussel, uh, Ted Bilia, and Douglas Hadley. Remember, you can find the CJA Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, give us a rating. Just to remind listeners, you can find their excellent report on the program notes. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The Global Exchange is brought to you by our team at CJAI. Thanks go out to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Colin Robertson. Thanks for joining us today on the Global Exchange.